that's a very common pattern is that you think like, oh, the inflation is like slowly going to increase. And we'll kind of see it happen. It's like, no, no, no. It's like a hockey stick. It's like a pandemic. It's like, boom, like all of a sudden, like March 2020 is the month where COVID-19 happened. So similarly, in the monetary sphere, inflation usually happens almost overnight. I think that moment will happen in the next 15 years, but I don't know when exactly. Servus and greetings from Vienna. My name is Anita Posch. Thank you for listening to Bitcoin und Co., my podcast that's introducing the philosophy, ideas and people behind Bitcoin. Hello and welcome to another insightful interview about the broader implications of Bitcoin in the light of the current crisis. Today I'm talking with Tour de Mester who recommended Bitcoin as an investment to his readers at $5 US back in 2012. I'd say Tour is a philosopher with a greater perspective and an historical approach to today's developments. If you have a question about the podcast or Bitcoin, feel free to visit the episode page at bitcoinandco.com forward slash en. There you will find an audio recorder to record your question. For my German-speaking listeners, I relaunched the German version of the podcast and teamed up with Daniela Schlicht to dive into Bitcoin and its implications and developments bi-weekly. You can find it on bitcoinandco.com forward slash DE. Before we start, a message from my sponsors. Not your keys, not your coins is one of the basic rules in Bitcoin. Therefore, I definitely recommend using a hardware wallet, which is what most professional crypto experts use for those who have problems or difficulties with the technical requirements and constant maintenance of hardware wallets for long-term safe storage. There is the card wallet. The card wallet is a very simple and secure solution for long-term storage of Bitcoin and Ethereum. No software updates needed, it's 100% offline and it leaves no traces on the blockchain. You can give it away as a gift or inheritance. You can send Bitcoin to it and all you have to do is to store it in a safe place. The manufacturers are the Austrian State Printing House and Coinfinity, Austria's first Bitcoin broker founded in 2014. Order your card wallet at cardwallet.com forward slash Anita and get 20% off. If you're interested in more Bitcoin-related podcasts, then check out the Let's Talk Bitcoin network at letstalkbitcoin.com, where you can find a number of other highly relevant Bitcoin podcasts today. Hello, Tour. It has been a year since we met in New York at Consensus Week, and uh, although I prefer to do my interviews in person, but as we all know, that's not possible this year. Uh, so I'm happy and glad that you found the time to be here online with me. Hi, Tour. Hi, Anita. Good to be here. Tour, I really appreciate the work you're doing and also your tweets. I think they are very thoughtful, well-balanced, and for me, as I do not have a financial background, I can learn something new every time. Please bear this uneducatedness in mind as I might be asking newbie questions in the following minutes. <laughs> uh, yeah, of course. And, and I'm really glad to hear that, like, you know, to, to an audience who, who is not like, you know, full-time economist or analyst that, that, you know, what I put out is, is still accessible enough. And I mean, for me, like, I always try to learn more 
Um, so, so it's, it, it makes sense to, I mean, maybe that's why, like I, I try to explain things to myself as I learn. So maybe that's why I've, I've managed to stay accessible. Mm -hmm. That's great. And I would like to talk with you about your paper that's called the Bitcoin Reformation. You published that at the end of last year and you are drawing comparisons between the Dutch Reformation in the 16th century and the emergence of Bitcoin in this century. This will bring us, I guess, of course, to the single most talked topic at the moment, COVID-19, and your thoughts about the impact of this crisis on the Bitcoin reformation. But before we get into this, please tell us your story. What's your background? What is your profession? Oh, um, well, I guess I I've always wanted to kind of be a writer somehow. And weirdly, that has worked out. Like early on, of course, it's it's really hard to to make a living writing, and so I would just like, I guess I went to university and I dropped out a few times. I tried different things. Um, um, I tried like philosophy and African studies and um, even political science briefly and economics, and and none of that really stuck for me enough to want to pursue it to to the end. So I dropped out. I did translation work. Um, um, I translated a, a big book about um, the business cycle from English into Dutch. Um, uh, and then also on the entrepreneur side, I, I did um, a few things. I, I co-founded two little private schools, um, Sudbury schools, in, one in Belgium and one in Holland. And then I also um, co-founded the Rothbard Institute. So that was um, uh, an academic-oriented uh, um organization like not very big obviously it was all very small but we did publish uh, a number of books and organize some events and it was all very austrian economics uh, philosophy of law uh, focused um and so eventually i i as i was learning about the history of, of banking and finance i just got you know fascinated and worried about the current environment because that was 2005 six seven and so in 2007 we we did start seeing some trouble uh on the horizon so i really started working on like how can i be financially independent how can i use some of the knowledge that i've gained and so eventually that culminated into a financial newsletter uh, so i i found or i launched that in uh 2011 and so that was just a subscription-based newsletter people would just uh, pay me Uh, an annual fee and then they would get my newsletters in the mail and I would respond to their questions. So that was in Dutch. Uh, it was called Macro Trends. I really enjoyed that. I was able to really kind of put a lot of my research focus into that and, and also help myself in the process because I was paid full time to do research. Um, and so one of the focuses that I had was really to find investments that are robust against the financial crisis because I was worried about Uh, inflation down the road. I was worried about market instability um, because of you know the previous work that I had done in economic theory and translating all these histories um, of of the financial world. I was really worried about the stability of the financial system, and so that's how in 2011 I was actually doing research as well in in Latin America because I, I wanted to know more about how to. You know, how do you stay as an individual robust in an environment that's very economically chaotic? So I went to Argentina, I went to Uruguay um, and some other countries. And so I did discover Bitcoin in, in Argentina in 2011. And then eventually in 2013, I decided to go full time Bitcoin. Um, 
I made a few, um, you know, um, um, angel investments in the space and I've been just publishing research mostly and, uh, enjoying myself. And I, I find that, you know, by sharing a lot of information, uh, sometimes some doors open to me that I, I'm able to make a, make an investment here or there or something like that. Or I just get, you know, good information about timing the markets. And so I've been able to be independent this whole time. And I feel really, really blessed that that's been the case. That sounds great. Yeah. And also you have a very interdisciplinary education. To me, it seems like uh, many people do have that in the Bitcoin space. Yeah, it, it is. I mean, yeah, it's hard if, if you're very specialized in one area and uh, it, it's hard to really grasp Bitcoin. I mean, of course you can, but you really need to kind of cultivate that natural curiosity and and because there's so many analogies possible to understand Bitcoin, um, but none of them fits one-on-one. -on -one. Like they only fit for certain dimensions of Bitcoin. Um, and so I just feel like it, it is really a plus if, if you already have like a natural Uh, if you just have natural joy in, in, in dipping your toes in different types of waters, um, that, that really helps um, kind of thrive in, in, in Bitcoin. You said you translated to Dutch. Do you have a European background? Yeah, I grew up in Bruges in Belgium. I lived there most of my life. I lived uh, also one year in Norway. I lived about two years in the Netherlands. So yeah, until 2014, I lived in Europe. And do you miss Europe in a way, the, the way of life or living here? Yeah, I do. I mean, there's, there's a lot of things that I, that I really enjoyed. Um, like I enjoy just, you know, t drive, riding my bike everywhere. Um, uh, I, I, I enjoy like just kind of going to the countryside. I could just take my bike and like bike to the ocean. Uh, it was like a half hour bike ride from where I lived. Um, there's like the, 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 everything is historic. That is just always interesting that there's this kind of context. Like you live in history, like you can just see a building as 500 years old and another one is a hundred years old. And, and, and so there is something to that. Um, Uh, but of course, there's things that I absolutely love about the United States. And, and so uh, to me, the, the balance is, is uh, on the side of the U.S. all in all. But yeah, for sure, there are things that I miss about, uh, about living in Europe. The museums as well. There's just so much, um, you know, just things to, to enjoy there. Does your background maybe have something to do with that the idea of the Bitcoin reformation, like drawing that historic uh, comparisons? Well, I mean, yeah, part of how I started or how I kind of stumbled into this history of the Reformation, like the Protestant Reformation, is I, I've always been quite fascinated by the difference in culture between the Netherlands and Flanders, because we speak the same language. But... Um, But somehow the cultures are extremely different. Uh, th there is some research that actually validates that, that, that um, of all the countries, the neighboring countries that share languages, uh, the difference between Flanders and the Netherlands, culturally speaking, is, is one of the widest. It's an incredibly wide gap. And it's weird because you can just take the train and cross the border very, very easily. I, I mean, I, growing up, I would just ride my bike across the border um, Uh, it, it's like a one-hour bike ride, and, and then I would be in the Netherlands. Uh, but there is there is really a lot 
behind why the cultures are so different. And that goes back to the Reformation. So it was kind of this, I thought I was sidetracking and I was just kind of, as as a hobby, I was kind of researching the history of my country. And then I stumbled into this incredible, rich and fascinating and dramatic and, and very scary period of time of, of, you know, the 16th century. And uh, it's just, yeah, it still fascinates me. I feel like uh, I missed out not learning about this earlier. Can you maybe walk us through the paper? Like you, you have a part with uh, four preconditions and then uh, you draw conclusions in a way or comparisons to Bitcoin today or the emergence of Bitcoin. Can we maybe start with the preconditions and you explain sure. what you mean with it? So to me, when you think about like revolutions in thought or revolutions in society, you can look at like, oh, you know, this happened at the time, um, you know, this, you know, whatever, like Franz Ferdinand, who was assassinated, and that was the start of the first war. But those are like the superficial analyses where it was like something happened. And then everybody pointed at that as like, oh, yeah, that was the start of this big change. And so, You know, for the Protestant Revolution, it's kind of like, oh yeah, Martin Luther, he 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 um, nailed his 95 theses to the church door, and that was the change of everything. It's like, well, it's not that simple. So I'm always trying to see like what what are really the catalysts that made this change possible. And so, um, to me, the whole religious debate is is of course important, um, but but it, it's not necessarily getting the essence of of why the Protestant Reformation happened. And so to me, um, what really was the precondition for the Protestant Reformation was the fact that you had this giant monopolistic service provider, uh, which is a Catholic church, and uh, and they were rent-seeking, which means that they were probably overcharging a lot for their service, but because there was no competition, they could just do that. Um, and then at the same time, there was this technological revolution that was happening. Like people were uh, discovering ways to travel the world and get back because it was always possible to cross an ocean and to find new territory. But the, the tricky bit was, was how do, you, how do you find your way back home? Uh, and so you needed uh, better compasses and tools to do that. And that's just one example. The printing press is another one. And there were several of those. And so because of this, this technological revolution, all of a sudden change became easier in society. It was easier for people who had different ideas to spread those ideas. It was easier for people who had a different mindset to make a new, a new life for themselves. Like you didn't have to be nobility to, to kind of uh, end up being wealthy. For example, there were new ways you could become a merchant and trade and things like that. Um, uh, also city, cities would start specializing across Europe um, in particular industries. And so then you could become a very specialized um, individual. Like, for example, in, in Flanders and in Antwerp, it was a huge hub for uh, painting. Like the Flemish painting is still famous. And so if you were very talented, you could travel there and, and make a career. Um, and, so, and, and, and so there was this new emerging economic class. Um, and I, I think that, group was also important for the reformation that they had some kind of common identity they had something the freedom they loved that they loved that they wanted to to have their own beliefs and 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 
doing things without having to ask permission uh, to everybody else. So, so that was important. And then finally, I think that the, the fourth precondition is really that um, these people also needed to, you know, doing a revolution, it's like either you, you have to have nothing left to lose, which is like, you know, the French Revolution where there was just terrible hyperinflation and and so much suffering that people were just like, screw it, I'm just going to go into the street and we'll see what happens. Um, or you need credible strategies to defend yourself or to escape. And, um, and so that I think applies to um, the people in, in the, the lowlands in the 16th century, 17th century, is that not only were they under threat because the Spanish wanted to annex the Netherlands, they, they, they sent this huge army um, from Spain by foot, which is in itself an incredible story, but they sent this huge army to just um, conquer the Netherlands and make it Catholic uh, and, and also prosecute and burn a lot of the heretics who were Protestants. Um, but also they, they actually had a real option because they, they had, you know, they were raining the oceans with their, with their boats, their seafaring industry was huge. And so they had a big fleet. And so you could always, if you were somewhat, you know, even if you had little means, you also had the option to flee to the UK, for example. I mean, at the time it wasn't called the UK, but to, you could flee to England or to other places, um, and so I think that was also important. Uh, and, and you could use water as a defense mechanism, which they did, which is you could flood um, the countryside. You could just open the sluices and flood the countryside. And that way, a marching army like the Spanish army would be severely slowed down or even stopped. And so I think all those things put together, it gives a better picture of like, why did the Reformation happen? And I do think there are parallels with today, which I'm sure we can get into. Yes, and I would like to start with the first one because um, I think it's one of the things most people never think about or we don't have the education. It's like the the, the system works, actually. I mean, the monopolistic rent-seeking service provider you state today is the international monetary and financial system. Uh, and you say this controls wealth and pensions. How does this work and who is actually profiting from this system? Because I think it's not uh, people like me and you. <laughs> yeah, probably not. Um, so, yeah, that, that's exactly right. The, the international uh, monetary and financial system. And I have that definition actually from the, the BIS, the Bank for International Settlements in Basel. Um, and, and because it's similar to, you know, the Catholic Church, like, you, you know, when you say that, it encompasses a lot. Like it wasn't just... The Vatican, it really was this multinational organization that had branches everywhere and churches and priests and bishops. And so similarly, um, you know, uh, the international financial system today is not just the Federal Reserve or something like that. It's, it's really this network of banks. And, 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 and of course, they do provide services. And that's part of the tension that we see in society today. Like some people are pointing out like, yeah, but they actually do important things and they make sure that you can get loans and this and that. And, and so the argument is that, yes, of course, that's true. They do that, but they are still a monopolistic service provider. Like there is only one money uh, or one monetary system and that's centrally decided. And we have, you know, not only central banks, but also central bank of central banks, such as the IMF and, and, and the ECB and, and uh, sorry, and the, the BIS. 
Um, and so who profits from all this? You know, so they have the monopoly on issuing money. They can just issue debt and issue money and, and really nobody else can. Like I cannot just create new money. I guess I could, you know, we could launch an ICO and, 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 but that's, that's new like that. We can do that. Um, um, but people have tried to issue, um, you know, gold backed money, for example, privately, and they really got into trouble. Uh, you can, you know, read some of that and, and, uh, you know, there was the Liberty dollar and some other initiatives. And so if you challenge the monopoly of money, you can really get into trouble and who profits from it is, is the people that issue, uh, that are the debtors basically, because, you know, if, if I save in euros or in dollars and I have a thousand or a million of it in my bank account, if somebody else issues more money, then my supply of money gets diluted and over time it'll lose value. So I lose. If I'm a saver, I lose. But if I'm a debtor, I owe somebody else a million dollars. Then actually, um, if that the value of that debt decreases over time, that's good for me. So the biggest debtors, they are the ones profiting from the system. Basically, governments who like to issue debt, uh, banks often have huge amounts of liabilities on their balance sheet, so they're often, you know, they're in the debtor class as well. They owe the deposits to their customers, for example. Um, and then, of course, there are, um, you know, large companies, blue chip companies, and things like that. But that's that's more secondary. I'd say the first ones are the banks and the governments. We already have Bitcoin lending, isn't it? quite the same. I mean, I could uh, borrow someone my Bitcoin. Okay, I can't create more Bitcoin out of thin air, but I can gain interest from it. Where's the difference here? Yeah, so the difference is that when you lend out Bitcoin, you run a real risk that the other person or entity is not going to pay you back. And if they don't pay you back, there's nothing you can do. If they went bankrupt or whatever, there's just you lost your money. Uh, and so in a way, you get the interest that you earn is a real compensation for the risk that you're running, uh, lending out that Bitcoin. Whereas a, a commercial bank today, when they lend out um, money, that money is not theirs. It was not on their balance sheet. Like they're able to borrow that from the central bank. Um, and then so when they run into trouble, they can just borrow more. And that's part of what these bailouts are. Like they get these giant loans created out of thin air from the central bank And the central bank then has an entry on their ledger that says, oh, this bank owes me so much. Uh, but really, if the bank is big enough, they it doesn't have to pay the money back. So so do you see the difference where like there's really no no existential risk for the bank when they when they don't run their business very well? They are going to get a bailout. And that's why they call the central bank the lender of last resort. Like you can always knock on the central bank's door and get more loans. Of course, only if you are a bank yourself, like you and I as individuals, we can't go to the central bank and get a 0% loan. Exactly. So the parallel with the Catholic Church is the separation of state and money now, no? because we have the separation of state and church, at least on paper in Austria. And now uh, Bitcoin would be the separation of state and money. Well, I, I guess as a new, I, you could argue that. Um, but I, to me, it's more like the fundamental change that happened back then was freedom of religion. Like, of course, in the long run, because it was a slow change and, and it was not applied equally. But like, that's why I, I, I bring up the example of New York City at the end, because 
it, the reason why New York City was so incredibly such a success story is that it was not founded as a as a um, a religious outpost like a lot of these early uh, colonies really were like religious based uh, projects where it's like we are going to proselytize and expand our territory and convert and and, and all that and and Manhattan Island was just a trading post it was not at all religiously focused it was actually profit focused and because you know religion really gets in the way religious doctrine gets in the way of free trade that's why they they said okay let's make let's not let's be tolerant for any kind of religion and at some point they allowed jews in and they allowed muslims in etc and so it became this melting pot and um and of course since like you know the most successful uh, trading hubs in the world have freedom of religion of course because because you want talent no matter the religious background and so i think that for bitcoin the ultimate for this reformation the ultimate outcome is going to be freedom of money monetary freedom so that you are not constricted to only the euro or the dollar but you can really truly freely choose in which money you save, in which money you pay taxes, in which money you incur debt, any of that. Does that make sense? Yes, sure. Do you think that we will have a lot of different currencies in the future, like to have a freedom of choice, or will it be Bitcoin only? So like like some people think. I think that it's going to be a, ver a long tail still, like I because of it's so easy to just launch a new coin and, and all that. So I think that there's going to be At all times, from now on, because we've had, uh, at all times, we'll have a thousand altcoins. But the question is, of course, how much are they going to be worth? And so I think that the long tail of cryptocurrencies is going to be small. I think that the Bitcoin market cap is always going to be 80 or 90 percent of total. And then we'll have all kinds of other experiments uh, that go on for, you know, which is good and healthy. I, I love that. Let, let a thousand flowers blossom. But so that's how I see the long term. And then, of course, I think that fiat currencies are not going to disappear overnight, um, just like, you know, the Catholic Church is still around. We had the Reformation 500 years ago, and of course, it declined in power, but it's still around. Um, and so, yeah, I think that governments are going to tr keep trying to issue currency and, and, and have their own projects and initiatives. And, and that'll also be part of the monetary world. And I think that also... The most successful economic trading hubs are going to be the ones, maybe like Panama today is one of the few countries that does not have a central bank. As far as I know, they just like allow other currencies to circulate. And I think that kind of model is really going to be the, the key to economic success in the future. And uh, your third precondition is the youth millennials, young people who have uh, different views on the future, who have lived with the internet from the day on they were born. And you are citing a survey by Facebook uh, that says that only 8% of millennials trust financial institutions for guidance. Do you think that they will trust Facebook and Libra more? Than Bitcoin, maybe? Yeah, well, I mean, I think everything will depend on performance. I mean, if 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 Libra manages to keep its purchasing power and, and, and do the job in a good way, then, yeah, maybe people will trust it. Similar to the merchants in the Netherlands of the 16th century and, and in Founders, Some of them were successful in their, in their activities and other ones weren't. And so, to me, just... The simple act of moving away from 
the fiat system and doing this kind of monetary heresy uh, is that is the essence of this revolution. And so whether people make the right decision in, in, you know, cause some, some of these merchants made stupid decisions and they lost all their money, but they were still part of the reformation, if that makes sense. And so I think similarly, you know, I could have my idea about where Libra is going to go and somebody else has a different idea. But I think what matters is that people start asking, demanding for alternative um, paradigms. Then in the next step, you're talking about uh, the new financial economy during a reformation that was formed, uh, starting with banking. Can you talk a little bit about that, please? And the parallels to today? Yeah, so that was just so interesting is that how, you know, not only were they able to like break free and, and do it their way, but all of a sudden because this dogma was lifted and like anything was possible, uh, all this innovation happened. It was just incredible how much innovation um, happened financially in, in that era. Um, so, you know, obviously you had um, 100% reserve banking with the Bank of Amsterdam, which was just Uh, an incredibly respected institution for the next 200 years. And uh, there was also the first uh, IPO, the East India Trading Company did a public offering because like they couldn't rely on the good old network of, of you know, the nobility providing them with money or, you know, in the past you would go to the king if you wanted to fund your startup, basically. So this was a startup that did not have uh, a court to go to to get money. And so they went to the public and said, like, hey, do you want to finance our, our initiative? We'll give you a certificate and you can become part owner of this enterprise. Um, and so that was the first IPO that happened. And then over time, those shares uh, were used as um, were used as collateral for borrowing, which was also uh, historically very important. And it allowed the interest rates in the Netherlands to be one of the lowest in Europe um, because this company was so strong and reliable and did so well that it was just excellent um, collateral for, for all this economic activity. So those are just a few examples of, of really the, the innovation that happened. Also insurance, the insurance industry, which, you know, it's, it's Europe-wide. Like there was some in Venice, there was some in the other um, uh, trading hubs, but Important innovation also happened in the Netherlands about because you were going on these long expeditions, and so what do you do if 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 something goes wrong and and you don't want to lose your entire investment? So maybe you're willing to give up a little bit of upside just to 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 be made whole in case the ship perishes or something. And so that's kind of where um, the insurance industry emerged from. So just really really interesting. Uh, also, um, what's it called again? Um, these contracts that are kind of the predecessors to the insurance industry. Oh yeah. Annuities. Uh, so an annuity is where um, you pay a lump sum today and then uh, over your lifetime, you are paid an income from, from the other party. Uh, and so that's kind of a predecessor to uh, a life insurance policy. So just all this stuff happened. And, um, and I think it's, it's, It makes sense that it went together, that it was the freedom that allowed for the innovation to happen, but also the, the constrictions of, you know, they couldn't rely on the good old way of doing things. They had to do it 
in Holland where it was being, you know, there were lots of floods, there was lots of threats. There was just so, so many constrictions that it really forced them to, to be innovative. And I think we're seeing similar things in the Bitcoin industry today. Like you can't just, you know, go to the central bank and get a big loan. You have to be innovative. And so, for example, I don't know, like BitMEX has their own insurance fund. Like if they get hacked, they have some Bitcoin to spare to then, to then, um, pay out the people that that would have lost money otherwise so that kind of stuff ah that's what you mean with self insurance in the form of a reserve fund because yeah. i didn't know what you mean by that ah okay i understand then you also say it's hard to insure bitcoin because there are so many risks and one of this is given how globally saleable bitcoin is even nation state attacks cannot be ruled out Do you mean that nation states could buy so much Bitcoin or that they still can overtake the miners and drive a 51% attack? Yeah, there's different kind of attacks possible. I mean, technically, of course, like, yeah, what is it now? I don't know how much you would need to pay for a 51% sustained 51% attack, like probably like a couple billion dollars at least. So yeah, that is, yeah, that's always a threat. But I think that the 51% attack is quite misunderstood in terms of what it can do. Like there's there's really some limitations. Uh, it's really, the network is really governed by the economically important nodes, uh, not really by the miners. Uh, and we saw that with Bitcoin Cash, like which was in a way you could argue an attack by the miners. They started mining this fork and then basically you could split off, you know, you could basically decide to follow the miners and, and go into Bitcoin Cash. But because the economically important nodes decided to stay with Bitcoin, all the wealth or almost all the wealth stayed in the Bitcoin network. And so eventually those miners just shot themselves in the foot. They were just mining an economically unimportant uh, coin. And eventually most of them just went back to mining Bitcoin and, and kind of falling back in line. So, so yeah, nation state attacks are possible, but, but I think just it's kind of doomed to fail most, mostly. Um, but, but of course, nation states can also attack um, exchanges. They can try to hack things. Uh, there are, um, you know, North Korea is, is kind of infamous for trying to hack into accounts of individuals and exchanges. So that's already happening. So it's just something to keep in mind that like the, the threats are, you know, not insignificant. Uh, these are these are serious matters. And of course, if more nation states get into financial trouble, we can probably see this escalate where we really get kind of a cyber warfare happening. And they try to build their own uh, currencies, their own cryptocurrencies, mostly uh, permissioned currencies. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, for sure they would try that. And, and some of them will even force their population to use them, which I think is only going to ruin the economy more. I mean, that's one of the worst things you can do. If you want to, if you want your country to fail economically, what you do is you create a horrible currency and you force everybody to use it. It's just like, you know, it's, it's making everybody poor almost instantly. Um, and so that also means that tax revenues go down. The more you try that, we've seen it in, of course, in Zimbabwe, Venezuela, um, And eventually what happens is that they, there's a new generation of politicians and they're like, okay, we want a bigger economic pie. So we're going to dollarize the economy again or allow for monetary freedom again. So it's just one of these, one of these sad, you can't even call it experiments because it's, it's so clear that it always fails. But it's one of these 
sad phenomena that you, you see happen over and over. And I really saw that in Zimbabwe. I mean, you're completely right. This is exactly what's happening there since 40 years. Yeah, It's very sad. And it's it's so painful. And it just, you know, eventually all I hear from Venezuela as well is like people just say, I wish I had left earlier. Like it's it's like an economic death sentence. Interestingly, you do not mention the possibility of Bitcoin being used as a medium of exchange in the report. It's all about Bitcoin lending, underwriting, initial exchange offerings. Uh, why? Oh, yeah. Well, because to me, that's the last phase of, of the, the process of, of an economic good becoming a money. It's like the first phase is just, uh, you know, it's it's a collectible. The second phase is, is a store of value. Um, the third phase is medium of exchange, and then the last one is is um, is really becomes a, a standard, and everybody refers to everything else as being expressed in that money. So for me, it's just a bit early, and and I feel like there's just been, I kind of want to maybe it's just like I'm grinding my teeth a little bit because I feel like a lot of people have jumped to that much much too quickly. Like it's going to take a lot of time for Bitcoin to become a medium of exchange, and and. Be, it'll be very mature by the time people really recognize it that way. Uh, so I didn't feel like it was necessary. That's why also, like I'm, to me, Bitcoinization is not the final stage. It's really that monetary freedom that I think will matter. What's the time frame you're talking about, like the different phases? Yeah, it's it's hard because it's kind of like, to me, Bitcoin is just, it's just the better technology, like compared to the traditional financial system and i'm not talking about all these intricate functions of course like the financial system is very mature and has derivatives and all kinds of like things that are not existing in bitcoin yet but from a basic foundational point of view by enforcing digital scarcity bitcoin clearly is the superior technology um and so i think it will win in the long term but then how fast is more to me it's almost a question of how fast can the traditional system fail um, and so it's kind of similar with the, the Protestant Reformation is that you had this, these excesses that were happening, like just way overcharging people. And then if you combine that with an economic crisis, then people start to rebel. And so, um, so to me, to the barometer of how fast Bitcoin is going to grow is, is weirdly you have to look away and look at the traditional financial system. And so I see these accelerating bailouts as really, uh, a canary in the coal mine. I think it's really a sign that the system is deteriorating pretty quickly. We're talking about airdropping people $1,200 in their bank account. We're talking about platinum coins that are that are worth a trillion dollar each. Uh, like these crazy ideas all of a sudden are becoming taken seriously. And so as the inflation accelerates in the traditional system, I think it could be in the next 10 years, the world could look extremely different. 10, let's say 20 years. Uh, so in our lifetime, I think in our lifetime, the monetary landscape is going to change absolutely radically. But it's very hard to predict how fast because, you know, the, it's the problem also when you talk to people who whose currency collapsed. It's kind of like, you know, how did it happen? You ask them, like in Mexico with the peso crisis or or you know, you talk to them and they're like, well, everything seemed to be going fine. And then all of a sudden everything changes. 
So that's that's a very common pattern is that you think like, oh, the inflation is like slowly going to increase and we'll kind of see it happen. It's like, no, no, no. It's like a hockey stick. It's like a pandemic. It's like, boom, like all of a sudden, like March 2020 is the month where COVID-19 happened. So similarly, in the monetary sphere, inflation usually happens almost overnight. I think that moment will happen in the next 15 years, but I don't know when exactly. You were talking about uh, scarcity, like the 21 million cap uh, supply of Bitcoin. And one argument uh, always is uh, an economy needs the possibility to control and manipulate the money supply. Otherwise, it can't grow and it will not flourish. Is this true? It seems many Bitcoiners say there's another way possible. How can this work? What's the argument on the other side? What, what could I answer these people? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, to me, it's, and this is Keynesian economics, really. It's, it's, it's what John Mayer Keynes was famous for this, this metaphor that like the economy somehow is an engine and that like, you know, the, the money supply is like gasoline or lubricant is like, yeah, if the engine is not running very well, you have to just throw more gasoline into it and then it'll like start run faster. But that is just a very, very, dangerous and wrong analogy that's because really what money is is uh like you mentioned it medium of exchange right so it's it's kind of it's almost like it's it's like a language that's a much better analogy like money is like a language it allows us to communicate it allows the entrepreneur to identify whether he's doing well or not whether he's making a profit which means he's doing well his business is sustainable or not he's making a loss so so accounting is just so important to the economy even you know for us individually like am i are my finances healthy well we need money to measure that and so in a way that, that what the keynesians are suggesting is like But what if we just create more money, right? Then we can, we'll have more activity in the economy. It's like, no, what you do with more money is that you give people the illusion that they have more money. Like, you know, money is artificially rendered cheaper because you flood the system with cheap loans and then everybody thinks, oh, you know, the interest rate instead of being 12% is only 2%. So now with my income, I can have a much bigger debt. And so everybody starts going into debt because the money is made artificially cheaper. And then eventually, of course, we see the debt crisis where the their income starts to decline because of other circumstances and they cannot pay, pay back the debt. And then the lies revealed, like everybody was fooled into thinking that they were much richer than they were actually they actually are. That's one of the big criticisms of Austrian economists when they... Um, criticize other schools analysis of the business cycle is that Austrian econom uh, economists, and I feel kind of self-conscious talking to you because you're Austrian, but I mean the Austrian school of economics, you know, the Austrian analysis is that the seed for the bust, the seed for the crisis is sown in the boom. So the boom is really where like the 1920s, the boom of the 1920s, that was an artificial boom. It was because of money creation. Central banks had only, you know, were brought into life in the U.S. In, in 1913. And so cheap credit was injected in the system. And for 15 years, there was this economic, um, um, massive economic activity, but it was debt fuel. It was not sustainable. And so then you had the Great Depression as a result. Um, and so when you when you have the opposite of just healthy money, no intervention, then the communication can happen smoothly 
And of course, there there will be you know times when there are some problems, but recovery is a lot faster because uh, the economy as a whole is not fooled because the interest rates are actually communicating the genuine amount of savings and debt in the economy. And and I think it's maybe important to just like just kind of touch again on the interest rates because. You know, it's a thing and, and the central, we hear about it and, oh, the central bank is lowering interest rates or raising interest rates. Like it's kind of this lever that they're using to, to manipulate the economy. But if you really think about what interest rate is, it's just the price of money, like the price of liquid capital in the economy. And so when you talk about an interest rate of 10%, it means that, you know, um, there is maybe not as much, there is not as much capital available uh, to lend out than if the interest rate is at 2%. And so right now, when we're talking about 0% interest rates or, or very low interest rates, it means that the money is incredibly cheap, right? So, so, but that's not natural because it's the, this interest rate is set by the central bank. They are pushing new money into the system for very, very cheap because they want everybody to keep spending and keep borrowing. Um, but that's very unhealthy. Uh, and so that's why... There is going to be an interest rate shock eventually. We're going to go back to normal. And that means that first we're going to have a period of extremely high interest rates because there is no genuine saving in the economy. Like most people are in debt. Like most people don't really have, if you make the balance of all their liabilities and assets, they are, they are in the red. And so without the help of central banks, there is hardly any real money to lend out. And like we talked about earlier, if you lend out your Bitcoin, you run that risk that somebody's going to run away with it and or they won't pay you back. Um, so I think, you know, thinking about interest rates is really important to understand the, you know, how weird things are. Like right now, the interest rates are the lowest they have been in a thousand years. Like I'm not exaggerating. So this is, this is just a, a sign of how unhealthy the economy is. I mean, yesterday you tweeted about the Fed buying the debt of cities and countries. How can this work? I mean, uh, does the Fed then own a part of the cities? Or Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, so far it's just debt. It's not really, you know, equity. But of course it means if you, if you are indebted to the Federal Reserve, then of course you, you kind of have more political loyalty to the to Federal Reserve because they are your sugar daddy or they're the ones who are bailing you out. Uh, so for sure, there is a political significance to this. Um, you know, similarly, if the Fed buys other things that you, you kind of, there's a, there's a power element to it. Um, but ultimately, you know, I don't think they will ever force these, cities to pay the Fed back because why would they? The Fed can always make new money. Like the, why would they force austerity on everybody else? This is just going to continue in my view. They're going to bail out more and more and more people until eventually it's like the economically strong nodes in the Bitcoin network. Like people who are holding on to dollars and who believe that the dollar have value, those are the people ultimately in control of the dollar, not the Federal Reserve. Right. Because if those people sell their dollars and like, look, I'm sick and tired of you just printing more trillions. I'm just going to sell all my dollars. I don't care. I'll have gold. I'll have Bitcoin. I'll take care of myself. Well, then the Fed is powerless. And then it's clear that the emperor has no clothes because everybody sold their dollars and they're worthless. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's weird. It's just like this, this, this common illusion that we all have that the Federal Reserve has, has the power. 
Yeah, and I think it's a private company. Or I mean, and also I've read that uh, BlackRock is like consulting uh, the Fed very uh, intensely. Isn't that a little bit weird? I mean, are you concerned about those constructions? Yeah, it's it's inevitable, right? It's it's like the Vatican, who you know, the Vatican was like the Fed of of you know way 500 years ago they had so much power and then there was of course nepotism where you know for example uh there was this big vanity project in rome where the 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 saint peter's cathedral which was extremely expensive to build and so um they just decided to um raise a new tax on um people of faith and so that in order to get into heaven you had to pay this special tax And then that would go to St. Peter's Cathedral to that construction. So, you know, it's similar, right? I mean, they, they are now levying a tax on the entire dollar saving population in order to then funnel the money to BlackRock, who is then going to invest it with their buddies and whatever. So, yeah, it's, it's nepotism. It's, it's inevitable in, in any kind of monopolistic system. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because I think that's one of the reasons why I am an atheist because I never wanted to belong to this uh, monopolistic, um, uh, rent-seeking company that the Vatican is in a way. Right. Yeah. I mean, institutionalized religion, they have a strange power over their constituents. Like they, you know, it is, um, and I think it's, they are losing some power because people have more access to information elsewhere. Even if you are spiritual or religious, like you don't, you know, you can get your, you don't need a priest to help you find the information you need, or there's many different ways to, to get that, even if you're a person of faith. And so similarly, you know, with Bitcoin, it's like all of a sudden like, oh, well, in order to get financial services, you don't necessarily need to go to a bank. There may be alternatives. Yeah, Tour, thanks. That was a great talk. I think a great chat. Do you want to add anything? What's your expectation? Uh, where are we going in this year or in the next year with Bitcoin? And also, you were one of the first ones uh, who canceled his uh, travels uh, due to the virus. What are your expectations now? Yeah, so to me, this pandemic is like, it's like a catalyst. Like everything... It's it's kind of a great excuse as well for governments and, and economists to blame everything on the pandemic. Like, oh, yeah, people are losing their jobs because because of the lockdown and this and that. But like, if you look at the 1918, um, the Spanish flu, there was not mass unemployment like there is today. Like, you know, it wasn't as bad at all because people had actual savings and they could weather things like this. And so to me, this pandemic is just a catalyst. Like it's it's kind of making everything happen that was already going to happen, but it's just making it happen faster. And so this unemployment was going to happen regardless of the shutdowns. I believe, um, because simply the debt was unsustainable for governments, for companies, for individuals. There's just way too much debt. Uh, and the money printing was also going to happen. All these bailouts that was already in the cards. And so for me, the big story, of course, I'm trying to stay safe. And, and, and you know, I do think they will they will come up with some some real medical answers to this, this crisis. Um, but to me, the real concern is is inflation. Like I'm really, really worried that the, the, the pace of how fast everything is happening and how many trillions are being just printed. And also because of the pandemic, people's spending window is much more narrow. Like they spend in a much, you know, more precise way 
and a lot of money goes to food and maybe some rent and like but but it's a lot more limited than before and so i think that could really lead to food inflation where a lot of people are bidding on the same stuff i mean i'm writing a a, a piece on the parallels between the uh, French great inflation of the 18th century and today, like the, the great inflation of France with the Asignas led to the French Revolution. Uh, and I'm afraid that that there's just so much, like the debates are no longer about should we bail out or not? Should we print more money or not? It's more like how much, how fast? That's the only debate that's left. And that was also the case in France in the 18th century. And um, of course, in Germany in the 1920s, everybody thought the German government was so strong, the German mark was such a widely used currency, so they could get away with it. And I feel like similarly, people just feel like the Fed can get away with it. And of course, all the central banks around the world are now doing the same. This is going to be unprecedented. Global inflation is going to happen, I think, in our lifetime. It's not going to be fun, but I think a lot is going to change. And so to me, that is where people's focus should be already. It's like you should prepare for a lot of inflation to happen. And I think the work that you're doing by visiting Zimbabwe and studying that is, is probably very, very valuable. Thank you. Yeah, I think so too. And uh, so what would be the advice that you could give our listeners? Well, it's hard because it's kind of like a doctor who's trying to prescribe medicine for a disease that he's never seen before, uh, or at least the scale or the, the, the dimension of the disease are just so much bigger. Uh, but in general, what, what works is that you try to be, and Nick Zabo has said this as well, you try to prepare yourself for many, many scenarios. And so that's why rather than saying, I'm going to spend all my money buying this one plot of land in this one location, and I'm going to build my fortress there and I'll have everything that I need. Like Usually isolationism doesn't work very well because as the economy breaks down, also basic services tend to be disrupted and so all of a sudden you're in the middle of nowhere and you can't get gas or you can't get medical services or things like that so so i think flexibility is really important to also have that mindset of like you know could i move like is am i am i ready to move if i need to because i don't know how the world is going to look like in five years but i know that i want the flexibility to choose what's best for my family. So I think that's important. And so that's why also investing some time and energy in identifying like what assets do I think in an inflationary environment are going to retain their value and are going to still be, am I still going to be able to sell when I need to? What, what assets are going to be liquid and accessible? And my analysis so far is I end up with gold and Bitcoin. I think those are the two likely assets that will still retain their value and be actually usable and so if you have that then you can cross the border or then you just kind of keep your options open and of course frugality i think is important too like you try to not overspend and uh, and and try to be a saver because savers are in the minority right now if you can try and you know be a saver you should be able to to do quite well in, in a period of inflation um, and then also just prepare for a political change because like people go crazy like get really scared during a time of, of inflation it doesn't last forever it usually lasts between two and five years like a serious hyperinflation and in the west it tends to go over a bit sooner it's it's usually between two and three years and then in latin america and and other uh second third world economies it's usually a bit longer like three four five years um so yeah like that's a period like it's like war it's like financial warfare and you just have to weather it and things are going to be crazy and so emotionally i think you need to prepare for that as well is that like just try to 
really understand that this won't last forever. There will be another side to this. This is just a difficult period of big change, and you can get through this. Uh, I think the emotional, psychological aspect is really important too. Wow, yeah. Thank you very much for your insights on that. Please tell us where can people find and follow your work? I would just say Google my name. I think the first result is my Twitter account. So um, yeah, I'm always just uh, doodling and just sharing um, what comes up. And then probably number two is uh, I, sometimes I post things on Medium. So I have like a medium.com blog. And are you working on a book because you first said uh, you want to be a writer? Yeah, I have several projects in the work. I, I'm not ready to like share publicly, but like a, they... I guess the general topics are like one project is about philosophy. Then there's one about, uh, I guess you could call it history and popular culture. And then um, I guess very vaguely, there's also, I guess I would like at some point, I think, write a book about like the culture of Flanders, which I just, I'm fascinated by. But um, that's really down the road. That's not what I'm working on right now. And then also I have a, a pretty beefy article in the works about um, hyperinflation. Oh, I'm curious about that. And uh, count me in, I'm going to buy your books. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I'm flattered. And maybe there won't be like, I mean, that's one of the things. It's like the, being like out there, it's, it's nice because I'm less reliant maybe on a publisher. Like maybe I'll find some kind of audience if, if I put it out myself. So that, I guess that's another way I'm just trying to be self-reliant as to, kind of, you know, build your own email list and, and things like that. Yeah, maybe I can give you a hint. I mean, there's this guy, he's called Derek Sivers. I'm not sure if you know him. Yeah. Um, uh, he was the founder of CD Baby in the 90s, uh, a uh, seller of CDs, an online seller. Right. And um, he's doing exactly the same thing. He's writing his books and now he's going to self-publish it. And he's completely self-reliant also with his website and all the tools he has. So he's an interesting guy. I will uh, look it up. Thank you. Okay. So thank you very much again, Tour. And um, yeah, I'll hope uh, we'll hear us again soon and uh, stay safe. And thank you. Yeah, you too. Thanks so much. Happy to, happy to talk again. That's it for today. I hope you'll join me again next week. If you like my show, please write a recommendation in your favorite podcast player. If you're a German speaker and want to start using Bitcoin, then I recommend my book to you. It gives a comprehensive jumpstart into becoming a Bitcoin user with recommendations and safety tips. You can buy it on Amazon or if you prefer to pay with Bitcoin or Lightning, drop me a message at hello at anitaposch.com. I'm currently looking for new sponsors for my podcast, so please feel free to send me a message too. For new updates, please follow me on Twitter at Anita Posch and subscribe to my newsletter at anitaposch.com forward slash newsletter. Thank you for listening. Music, start with yes, delicate beats. Idea, content and production, yours truly, Anita Posch.